God knows that we need to be reminded of his glory. He knows that. And that's why the skies are as glorious as they are, in part. I'm sure I can't know the mind of God as far as his creating them. But um, I think he knows that we get absorbed with ourselves and uh, are in frequent need of reminders of where we are in relation to him. And I think that it's easy to forget that we should seek out experiences of beauty. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. In October of 1950, C.S. Lewis published The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book to be published in what would eventually become a seven-book series. Lewis dedicated the story to his goddaughter, Lucy Barfield, the adopted daughter of Lewis's good friend, Owen Barfield. Lucy was 15 at the time, and the short dedication in the opening of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe reads as follows. Quote, My dear Lucy, I write this story for you. But when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Then you can take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. End quote. Lucy Barfield is the inspiration for Lucy Pevensey in the story, the young girl with two brothers and a sister who first discovers the land of Narnia through the back of the wardrobe in the house of the eccentric old professor. Lucy Barfield grew up to be a successful musician and an accomplished dancer, in addition to creating works of poetry and works of art. She also taught dance and piano. Sadly, however, in 1963, the same year C.S. Lewis died, Lucy was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. But she surprised everyone by living to 67 years of age, passing away in May of 2003. Here's an excerpt from one of Lucy's poems. Quote, Am I in love with life? Why not? My outward wings take me beyond all mortal earthly fleshly things. It is the growing of a flower. It is the growing of a tree. The growing growth of spirit takes me there. All pain evaporates in air, all vivid color too. The delicacy of life is found in balance with the heights, the very living source of life, the very truth and breath of life. Though visible in seconds here, and yet is timeless." End quote. Creation, though temporal and time-bound, is replete with the distant melodies of a kingdom and of a country not of this world. The heavens and earth are signposts and signatures of the kingdom of God. This world is not our final home. In the Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, and Eastern Orthodox traditions, December 13th commemorates another Lucy, a young woman who is said to have perished in the early 4th century under the Diocletian persecution of Christians in Rome. Hers was a life that has been remembered and celebrated as one dedicated to the kingdom of the heavens, a light 
shining in the darkness. Poet, priest, and author Malcolm Geit notes that St. Lucy's Day used to be observed on the winter solstice on the 21st of December. Quote, So it is quite understandable that an early Christian martyr, whose name means light, came to have her festivities at the solstice, and that we should seek to celebrate light on the briefest and darkest day. It is also not surprising that it is the most northern of European countries that make the most of St. Lucy. Many people will be familiar with the Scandinavian celebrations in which the eldest daughter of the family rises early, robed in white, and with a crown of berries and lit candles on her head. She brings holiday food to her family while they sing Sancta Lucia, and thus the first celebration of the coming Christmas season is ushered in. It is more surprising to see how this sense of contrast between darkness and light, and centered on the figure of St. Lucy, survived even into Protestant England when so many saints' days and old ceremonies were abolished. Geit goes on to quote the poet John Donne, who describes what many people feel like on the darkest day of the year. Quote, Life is shrunk, dead and interred, yet all these seem to laugh compared with me, who am their epitaph, end quote. Lucy, a name meaning light, hope in the darkest of times, a diadem in the blackest of night. The Bible, of course, is filled with allusions to light. Stars, for example, can be lights in the sky, but they can also be metaphors for people and angelic beings. Firefolk, as the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins so aptly describes the stars, quote, Look at the stars. Look. Look up at the skies. Oh, look at the firefolk sitting in the air. The bright boroughs, the circle citadels there, down in dim woods, the diamond delves, the elves' eyes. End quote. Lucy Barfield and St. Lucy are reminders to us of something greater, of someone greater than all of us. Lucy reminds us of Lewis, who reminds us of Narnia, which reminds us of Christ. St. Lucy reminds us of a light shining in one of the darkest times in the church's history, also reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so perhaps we might read Lewis's small token of affection for his goddaughter Lucy in light of creation and how creation reminds us of Jesus. Perhaps we should once more cultivate a childlike wonder of creation, open our eyes afresh, dust off the long-forgotten volume of the created world, and read it again for the first time. For creation itself is the grandest of fairy tales, filled with symbol, allegory, metaphor, simile, and synecdoche, all divine figures of speech pointing to the kingdom of the heavens. And of course, this world is filled with all kinds of wondrous living creatures, with planets and stars, and with divine image bearers, you and me. And it is all held together and centered in Christ for his glory. As author Stratford Caldecott writes, quote, Christ's advent transformed the very structure and substance of space and time. Its structure by giving it a center around which to turn. Its substance by giving eternal life to the shadowy reality of transient flesh. To the author of Revelation, Christ was not one more religious leader or prophet of the kind one finds in every religion. He was the very Logos of God. He was like a comet that strikes the earth, an event of such overwhelming force that the whole history and substance of the world was changed forever. His advent, long prepared for, implanted eternity within time, giving history a center and an end. 
Like a magnet dropped into a field of iron filings, he oriented all things to himself, for he was their maker and master. End quote. On this two-part episode of Good Heavens, I had the delightful privilege of conversing with musicologist Dr. Christina George. Christy, too, is a kind of Lucy in her own right. We talked about C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, music, of course, and how all of creation sings and points to the risen Lord Jesus. Christy is truly a luminous reflection of her Lord and Savior. From her website, Christy is a pianist and educator from McMinnville, Oregon, holding a Ph.D. in musicology from Claremont Graduate University. Her research interests center around music criticism and the relationship between taste and aesthetics. She currently serves as an assistant editor of Performance Practice Review, an academic peer-reviewed journal published by Claremont Graduate University, where she solicits writings on historical performance practice from scholars around the world. She has also taught at Biola University in both the Conservatory of Music and the Tory Honors Institute. For nearly 10 years, Christy has been teaching private piano lessons to students of all ages. She is especially drawn to the sense of wonder many students have as they realize they too can make beautiful music happen at their instrument. She is a member of the Music Teachers National Association and has taught at Ivory Dreams Piano Studio, the First Evangelical Church of Cerritos Children's Academy, and Cincinnati School of Music. Equally at home as a performer and thinker, Christina aspires to teach, publish, and perform in a manner which unifies the disciplines of music, philosophy, and theology in an age characterized by fragmentation. She and her husband, Garrett, both currently teach at Austinburg Music Academy in Covington, Kentucky. Christina George. I was sort of a late bloomer in terms of uh, when kids begin learning music. I am a, a piano teacher, um, and I have been for about 10 to 12 years. And, you know, I get some students that are three years old with very eager parents. Usually the kid's not very eager at three years old. And um, I uh, get a lot of students that are young and then stick with it for a couple of years and then quit. And then some students who are older who are, are more interested and so, you know, take piano lessons more long term. But um, my parents sort of had this rule of thumb where they were not going to uh, pay for music lessons if I would not initiate practicing. <laughs> so we tried it when I was five and I just hated it. My uh, There was mm. a song after Mary Had a Little Lamb called The Paratrooper. So for anyone that's taken the John Thompson piano books as a kid, probably anywhere from the last 30 to 50 years ago, it, The Paratrooper, it, it's a big one. And uh, it dissuaded me from ever playing the piano again. Until I was nine, and my mom started taking piano lessons from a woman who went to a church, and we had a lot of, of shared acquaintances, and um, she was not able to make all of her piano lessons, and I would go to the ones that she had to miss, and pretty soon, my poor mom got none of her piano lessons, and I took all of them, <laughs> and I loved it. So that was sort of the beginning of the whole narrative, <laughs> and... Um, and I, I stuck with it, and I really loved it. But piano was always, um, it had this role in my life of being something that I was so relieved I could I could do, because I wasn't really an athletic kid, and it was amazing to me to feel like I could practice music and get better at it. That was sort of a little bit of a tiny miracle in my life. So I, I really loved it. And um, a couple of years into my piano lessons, we were homeschooling and this is where the astronomy part comes in because we got behind on our science curriculum for the year and my mom came out into the living room one day and she announced that we were canceling our summer houseboat vacation and instead we were going as a family to a star party for three days and 
of course, we all looked at her like, Mom, what's a star party? She said, I just read about it in this family fun magazine. Everyone gathers on the top of a high, dry mountain where there is only a dark sky, and you look at the sky for three days. And we were like, you're insane. (laughs) So we went to the star party because Mom said, you know. So my dad, I'm not even sure how my dad went along with this at first, too, because he was really excited about the houseboat. But... We got to the top of Table Mountain. I guess it's in, is that in Washington. I, I was 12, so I can't even remember. All I knew is we were closer to the sky. And we took a little four inch telescope with us that we had gotten for the trip's purpose. We did not previously own a telescope. And the first night, it was so dark. And I had no idea that there were that many stars. Just like period existing in the Mm. cosmos and I looked at the sky and it was a different sky than I had ever seen and I couldn't even detect the constellations which we had practiced kind of like Mm -hmm. as a family we knew how to name I don't know 10 or 12 of them not Mm -hmm. tons but I looked at it and I couldn't recognize anything and it took a full night or two before my eyes learned to see the layers the really gauzy white stars in the back and then the brighter ones that were constellations and then the brightest ones that were planets or satellites or something so um it was sort of this sudden love of something I didn't even know was like that I I thought the constellations that I saw by my house in my town were sort of what you could access so we love we had the best time we saw a couple of galaxies couple nebula we came home sold the four inch telescope my dad sold a keyboard and at least one or two guitars and we got a 10 inch job (laughs) we were like we have to see more So that was sort of the beginning of uh, the second love in my life, which I promise gets back to musicology, which is where it will end. But I was dead set on being an an astronaut. Mm -hmm. I was like, they're going to Mars one day. I'm going to be there. I would fall asleep listening to cassette tapes um, where they were narrating the process of doing things with the payload bay on the uh, space station. (laughs) And I just thought, this is my future. And I would watch live coverage of the space station. That's, of course, the most boring thing you could possibly watch. But I would watch the room of people watching the space station. And I just thought, this is is my future. And my grandma came up to me one day and she said, you know, Christy, it's pretty hard to be an astronaut. This might not be what God has for you. And I got so angry. I said, Nana, this is definitely what God has for me. Don't you worry. And so that took me to approximately age, you know, 14, 15. And at that point, I was in the middle of high school and I needed to decide what I was going to do in college. And I'm, I'm a big, big planner. So by sophomore year, I was thinking about all my life goals. And it sort of just hit me. On every single math paper, up until that point, I had written the letters Oh, I have to remember the letters. O-S-C-T-T-M, which literally stood for one step closer to the moon because I hated math. I was okay at it, but I didn't like it. But if I remembered every single day that my learning this calculus would make Mm. me an astronaut one day, then it was worth it. So it was a a big kind of crossing point in the roads, and I I thought, (laughs) man, I'm a lot better at the piano (laughs) than math, and probably... NASA would be interested in knowing I'm not actually an engineer. <laughs> I'm not. I knew I knew I wasn't minded in a way that could construct something that could fly people into space or actually be willing to leave my family for an extended period of time in those kinds of ways. Um, so it was sort of a it was a sobering moment because I know a lot of people want to be an astronaut, but it was really it was my dream. And so I decided to do um, piano performance. So that sort of began a chapter which I'll skip over hastily for sake of time, but I practiced and practiced and I went to school and got an undergraduate degree at Biola University in in piano Mm. performance. And um, it was there that I was also in the Tory Honors Institute and I had never even heard the word Socratic before I was in the Tory Honors Institute, but um, it changed my whole life and the... The fact that I was going to class sessions where we were talking about Plato's symposium and the nature of beauty, and then I was going to a piano lesson, and my piano teacher was talking about why this beauty is worth Mm. practicing four more hours after the four I've already Mm. done that day. It was was this 
you know, moment where it was the same. All of the teachers were talking about the same things, and I thought, this is so strange, though, because in my piano lesson, I never would have learned the other half. And in the, in the discussion setting, I never would have learned to practice mm. music. But by doing these two things, I, uh, I'm learning about what it means to be human. I'm learning about what it means to pursue God and to know why it is important that things are beautiful. So as I was approaching the end of senior year, I was frantically trying to decide, do I, I knew I wanted to get a graduate degree because I wanted to teach college. That's kind of always been my dream. And I couldn't decide if I wanted to do performance or something else because now I felt torn. If I spent eight hours a day practicing, I couldn't read these texts. I couldn't read Plato. I couldn't read Tolkien, I couldn't read Chesterton and anyone. So um, just because of the sheer amount of time and the ideas had become so special to me. So I decided to get um, a graduate degree in musicology. And most people ask, what is musicology? And I love that question because my answer is, I think musicology is all of the things that you love together in one space. But the tricky thing is it has to be musically related. (laughs) So I love philosophy and I love theology and I'm a practicing musician, and so I'm a musicologist. <laughs> and so most of my research deals with that point where music demonstrates a lot of philosophical tenets. And philosophers have used music in treatises for, for um, thousands of years. And that's not a new thing, but it's, it's something that's sort of the way that those disciplines relate to each other, I think, is a little lost today mm. in an um, especially American age of yes. over-specialization and majors in colleges where you have to choose one thing that, that limits the other. Um, most music majors are not taking very many philosophy classes, but all philosophers used to know how to talk about music. So, yeah. So that led me to musicology. That's wonderful, Christy. That's a fantastic story. And, and in some way, as I think we'll talk about here, uh, you make an excellent point about the connectivity of our ontology. In other words, as, as beings created in the image of the being, the I am, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, we have our, we live and move and have our ontology, as Paul says in, in, in Acts, right? That we live and move and have our being in him. Um, and so as, as uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, with Tolkien's idea of being a sub-creator, that we are, as made in the image of God, we are sub-creators. We don't create out of nothing, but we do create. And so we write songs and we talk about things. But, but I love how you, you, you make that uh, observation of the interconnectedness of our being, that uh, we are... We are so niche specialized now that I, I, I wonder how that has fractured our own ontology of our own thinking about ourselves. We are fractured selves because we are fractured professionals. You know, over here I do this and then I close that door and I go over here and I do this. And I close that door and I go over here and I do this. And I'm three different, four different, five different roles. And I don't see how it all fits together. I think that's a lot of a lot of us, right, in, in our culture today. I mean... What I want to try to do is uh, undergird what you've just said about um, the interconnectedness of hearing Plato in, in your music class and talk about how I think, you know, your, your connection to the stars and to music isn't like, well, you can only do, you can only do stars and you can only do the piano. You got to pick, you know, I mean, you were devastated when mm-hmm. you, you heard that news when you were a kid, right? You're like, well, well wait a minute. Of course, this is what, yeah. how can I not do this? But now, as you're seeing this, you're like, well, I can yeah. bring them together, right? That they, they go together. And um, so I thought we could talk about the foundation of how and why these things go together as, as the Bible reveals. Because I think there's, there's singing and creation and stars in Scripture. And so we have, the, we have the creation moment, right? And then in Job, the book of Job where God begins to speak to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And at the end of that verse, I think it's verse 6 or 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, we don't see the singing in Genesis, but God reminds us and tells Job 
that there were sons of God and stars that were singing at the creation event. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. It it makes me think of um this is not quite Job, but this the scene or that image of of singing stars uh evokes the I can't remember the details of the scene right now, but in in A Wrinkle in Time, in Langle's A Wrinkle in Time, there's this moment where they're traveling, you know, as usual through space and time and and the children are arrested by these creatures and for a while when I read it I actually thought they were stars, but these creatures below them that are basically singing holy 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 as the Lord of hosts and it's not quite this image, it's more a, an Isaiah and a Revelation image, but this idea that um nature is worshiping first kind of and um, and when I when I think of that question that that God puts to Job, where were you um, at this point? I think of two things. One, it's obviously a, a teaching moment, like who are you, Job? But then I think of of David's, what is man that you are mindful of him? So mm-hmm. even though God is teaching him in this moment, who are you to speak to me in this way? He's also saying, but I've also given you. Uh, a similar capacity for praise and that's a miracle that mm. even though you're so tiny um there is a way in which you can connect to your creator so that especially that job passage hearkens to both things for me yes absolutely and so when you think of the stars and you think of creation um you think of i mean biblically speaking we're we're in the psalms right i mean you've you've brought up david mm-hmm. in psalm 8 and uh and I, I want to go, and then you've mentioned Isaiah, of course, uh, with the, the vision that Isaiah has of the throne room. And, and it's interesting, Christine, the, the Isaiah's response that my lips are unclean. You know, that, that the first thing he says is my mouth, my lips. And so there's this emphasis on the cleansing of, what, of, of his lips with a hot coal uh, from one of the uh, beings from the mm-hmm. altar. But in response to, you know, singing and praising God, um, you know, as, as you, you hear the, the holy, holy, holy accord in, in the throne room, and it immediately reminds Isaiah of, my lips are unclean, the people among whom I dwell, their lips are unclean. We need to be cleansed in order to speak rightly about God. And, and it's, it's, it is, it's stunning. You know, to me, astronomy... And then you couple it with music, it it personally it shakes me to my core because you're just like <laughs> it's an immense kind of holiness, you know. It's like you you combine yeah. the singing and the 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 universe and the vastness of the heavens and like you described so well, your mountaintop experiences of seeing the stars like you've never seen them before. Right, you you come up and you go up high and you look up on high and you have this experience that Abraham must have had or Abram at the time Genesis fifteen five when Jesus takes Abram outside and and what does he say about the stars in the in the heavens right count yeah. the stars if you're able uh, and your gen your your descendants will be like this your descendants will be like this and so we did a whole podcast uh, Wayne and I on uh, stars in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we, because Mm -hmm. we wanted to lead up to what, you know, when you get to Matthew and chapter two in Matthew, the wise men come to Herod and said, we've seen his star. Um, And they know somehow that the star signifies that a king worthy of worship has been born in this region. And so they follow the star, of course, but we wanted to, we wanted to unpack what the Bible says about stars. And so what we're talking about here, it, it seems like uh, it's clear that the stars can be metaphorically associated with God's people. And not only God's people, but angelic beings. Right. And one of the things that stars do is they sing. Yeah. You know, whether they are declaring the glory of God in the heavens, you know, the, the song of the stars touched you when you were 12. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was no audible voice, right. but you were, you were moved like you were moved in a, a good piece of music moves you. It's the same kind of resonant effect of being moved by something that's tacit and silent, but yet powerful and present, would you say? Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. And it it makes me think of um, 
when you were talking about Isaiah's response and and his lament about his unclean lips, I think of um, Saint Athanasius on his uh, at the beginning of his on the incarnation. He he basically says that the very same word who spoke creation into being is also the same word who is achieving renewal. And that there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. Mm. And I have been thinking a lot about renewal lately, especially in this season of Advent. And I know for our family, it's been a very strange Advent, as I'm sure it is for many. It's hard to... um, I'll use the word feel on purpose because that's what most of us think of first, but it's hard to feel like Christmas is coming in the same way, Uh, especially when, you know, maybe some people's church services have had to be over Zoom occasionally or, um, or you're not allowed to sing all your regular Advent hymns because you're wearing masks and the singing is not suggested you know or all, all sorts of, of things which make it a quite a different advent than than what we usually practice but I think um, in in light of that I've been thinking what does it mean to be renewed during this time and one of the words that comes to mind which kind of um, relates to to all of us to the stars and singing and the way it, it moves us is this idea of attunement or harmony. And um, musically, it's so easy to think of harmony like um, just two sounds or more that sound pleasant together. We kind of, you know, it's, it sounds nice. And of course, that can be a different kind of sound in different, in different places in the world. But, um, but I think more than just that, harmony is, is more related to the idea of attunement that we get from from Plato where he talks about how the soul is like like a harp or like a lyre and even if the wood and the strings were to decay and fall away um, the soul is left and the soul exists in a substantial way like like harmony in music does and um I think of of stars singing almost in that kind of tangible sense because sound and light too are so you know they share a kind of a kind of substance in that they're palpable not physical in the ways that we're used to holding something but very substantial and um and they lead us somewhere they they help us know where to move um whether it's an anglerfish following its light or you know the wise men following the star they they're directives they're directives they teach us where to go and they help us know where to position ourselves and um, so all of, all of that to say, when I think about um, the unclean lips and I think about a continued need for, for renewal, um, and I think about Advent, I've, I've really been reflecting on this idea of attunement. What does it look like to, to tune my heart so that it is in sync with the creator who first gave it to me? Um, because I think that's what waiting must look like. And Advent is about waiting. It's about longing. And um, kids are good at this and adults aren't. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. In some way, children are more adults than adults. And in some way, the best adults are children. It's a yes. kind of a paradox. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it brings me to the point of what you're saying about attunement uh it sounds uh suspiciously similar to atonement yes um, in, in some sense that that yeah. uh that jesus comes we are awaiting uh the attunement um the fulfillment of the atonement i mean jesus justifies and atones uh for for our sin but it's not entirely complete yet mm-hmm. as you know mm-hmm. that famous theological sense of the here and now yeah. And the not yet, that there's this uh, ontological tension between being justified, uh, the process of sanctification, and the ultimate return of Jesus, of course, uh, as a triumphant king and not as not as an infant. He's coming back as, as the king of kings and the lord of lords. You know, we're talking about creation and stars and song. You know, we talked a little bit about Abraham just a minute ago, about looking up at the stars and Jesus, you know, the, the, the pre-incarnate Lord God coming to Abraham and saying, you know, count the stars if you're able. Your descendants will be like this. And um, you're familiar with the language in Genesis. You know that uh, God on day, I think it's day four, creates, um, well, he creates the light on day four. He creates 
the sun and the moon and the stars on day four. There's a different kind of light on day one. But uh, are you familiar with the term where he puts the sun, moon, and the stars, what they call that? Um, some Bible translations render it expanse. Oh, that yes. God, yeah. in the initial creation event, he separates the waters from the waters and creates this expanse that is kind of a mystery. Nobody, I mean, theologians have been wondering about what is this exactly? Mm-hmm. But he separates the water from the water and he creates the expanse and then into the expanse. And and this word appears like six or seven times in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And then into the expanse, he puts the sun, moon, and the stars. Can you think of another place in the Bible where this creation act is recreated? Oh, my first guess is is in a description of the the new heaven and the new earth, but that's not very specific. <laughs> well, there's actually a, a rather very specific one in the next book. Think about oh the Israelites the passing Exodus. through the Red Sea. Yes, yes. Uh, oh you, my goodness, that's you, great. <laughs> you separate the water from the water. Yeah. The Israelites go through it. Now these are Abraham's descendants, right? Yeah. And you look at the similarity between Jesus is not kidding when he says your descendants yeah. <laughs> will, yeah. will be like they will the be stars like those things the which fill the expanse. <laughs> yeah. And so great. here's yeah. here's another wonder that that gives me goosebumps when I stargaze in a dark sky. The next time you look up at a, at a phenomenally dark sky and you see the bajillions of stars out there, you're looking at a kind of a metaphor of what God has yeah. done for us in Jesus, going back to the Exodus. I get chills when I look at the stars mm-hmm. and think of this is God's artistic, poetic, musical way of reminding us of what he did for his children in, in Exodus and in, in Egypt and what he does for us in Christ. He puts us into the expanse. And and then what do, and so here's the musical relation I wanted you to kind of expand upon what what does exodus chapter 15 all about what is it what's going on there they're singing it's a song yeah they go through the expanse and the the their initial immediate response is a song what do you think it seems the the first as you're speaking about this and painting the picture of both kinds of expanse I just keep thinking it's so gracious that mm, mm-hmm. the expanse is filled the first time mm. as as God is is making this because when we in in the beginning of the um or the, the first story I know it's not part of the Silmarillion proper but how Iluvatar has has made Ainur and he has he has given them a musical theme and their job is to um is to create music um kind of in light of that theme that he has first given them and there's a lot we could say about that but the thing that relates to what you just mentioned about the expanse is one thing that really strikes me about this portion of the story is Iluvatar shows them a vision of what their music that they have kind of sub-created just made and he, he puts it before them and shows them what it would look like if you know it was kind of fabricated and actually made in earth and then he takes it away and there's a void and they basically freak out. <laughs> Why is there a void? Why is there this expanse? And, you know, it's it's hard because I don't want to make all of the terms the same. Void and expanse um, are, are definitely, they can be different. But I do think when I, when I think of the Israelites moving through um, that space between the waters, it, it, was, it was a void where the waters were supposed to be and then he took it away. And the only thing that they could do in order to become free and fulfill a prophecy and 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 is they had to walk through it and they had mm. to they had to fill it so it seems like all that to say it seems like a really um gracious thing to trust that to to be you know given the gift of of direction he said walk, walk through here and they did and the expanse was not actually something to be afraid of but fear mm. is very often something that I, I think is written about or spoken about when all of a sudden there was um, an expanse where there was not before. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think sometimes that's why there are stars. Sometimes I think probably these are in the sky just so that we would be less afraid, but that we would also be awestruck. Like they, it mm-hmm. must be both things. Yes. And I think that's similar. Yes. There's, a, there's, a, there's two kinds of fear. 
Um, there's one that is um, sort of humbling and awe-inspiring, and it, it you know the, the the fear maybe that of what Isaiah experiences or um, uh, what any of the people like John in, in Revelation or or Daniel when he sees the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. There's this uh, cleansing mm-hmm. kind of fear, like uh, gut punch, like oh my gosh, like a, a recognition of kind of fear. And then there's the fear that is. That the, the kind of fear that is evil, where it is empty, non-specific, and ambiguous. Do you ever yeah. notice that when you're afraid, yeah. you can't put your finger on it? That there's there's a vacuity of specificity yeah. mm-hmm. with the kind of fear that uh, yeah. is emptied of. It, it, in a sense, Christy, it's kind of like what evil is. Sort of the the Augustinian sort of uh, mm-hmm. evil is 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 the absence of goodness. And so with the healthy right. fear, you have an object that is God. With the evil kind of fear, it's an empty void or vacuity. Uh, and God, to yeah. take away that fear, he fills that void. I mean, if you think of uh, the passage in Genesis 50, where Joseph yeah. is discoursing with his brothers after he tells them, you know, what happened, he says that you meant yeah. it for evil. Mm-hmm. But what does God put into the void of Joseph's experience but his goodness, the grain, the the feeding of not just 5,000, but the whole world at the time, that through the vacuity of his brother's evil, God puts his goodness. And so I like what you say there about that. Um, Psalm 147 is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, It begins with a praise. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to Mm -hmm. our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I love this next verse. He counts the number of the stars Mm -hmm. and gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. And so... The, the graciousness of God is that he fills our vacuity with his goodness in a sort of undeserved kind of way that can only lead to us giving him praise through song. Yeah, I, I think to these two different kinds of fear, um, you had mentioned in one of the messages that you sent me the narrative of Aslan singing in The Magician's Nephew. And one thing I've really been noticing lately is... Um, Whenever music is mentioned in in literature, and of course this happens in in a real musical experience too, but not what is the music doing per se, but what is the effect on the listener? Because there's so much to kind of be learned about human nature there and about what God has for us to learn. And I, um, there were a couple of times where when um, Polly and Diggory see finally that the song that they have been hearing that's coming from somewhere but they don't know where uh, when when Aslan finally appears and they see it's a lion they can't look away and the language that Lewis uses is so beautiful because it's so simple but he says something like um they could not move but they weren't sure that they wanted to and it was this like this almost shock of the grandeur at first and then um, oh, but maybe maybe we should remain here. And and the cabbie says, "Glory be!" It's an instant, um, mm. an instant utterance of praise in response. That's a picture to me of this the second kind of fear, the good kind, <laughs> the kind mm. that's good to practice, mm. that we sometimes mm. can't help but practice. But I think um, I think the challenge actually is God knows that we need to be reminded of his glory. He mm. knows that. And that's why the skies are as glorious as they are in part. I'm sure I can't know the mind of God as far as his creating them. But um, I think he knows that we get absorbed with ourselves and uh, are in frequent need of reminders 
of where we are in relation to him. And I think that it's easy to forget that we should seek out experiences of beauty so that we can remember this whole person mm. feeling of mm-hmm. we looked at him and then we we couldn't look away because if we're distracted we aren't even looking in the direction of of mm. the song we won't mm. notice the lion um it is just as powerful you know the the music is no less powerful in that story and the witch says that she was afraid because she sensed that his magic was stronger than hers so it doesn't change the quality of the goodness but i think our distraction is is strong mm-hmm. um Mm-hmm. Pascal talks about that. Of course, we are yes. dis- we try to distract ourselves from our distraction by other distractions, and so Advent also seems to me like a time right now where it's a, a wonderful opportunity to put ourselves in places where we can see the stars, hear beautiful music, and and put ourselves in an orientation where we are more prone to look for the lion. Because I think mm. it's really hard to do that, especially right now when there's a lot of I mean, technology and remote Zoom meetings and all sorts of things which are, um, you know, more convenient in one sense and more distracting in another sense because we don't have to move around as much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's it's a mm-hmm. strange paradox. Yes, and uh, I know from the um, keeping tabs on it that uh, the pandemic has uh, created an uptick in uh, people being interested in astronomy, which is a good thing. Uh, mm. A really good thing. Yes. <laughs> um, but you talk about beauty as a reminder. Um, it, it, you know, I, I talk to, in the ministry that I do, I talk to a lot of atheists and skeptics, and people will say that beauty is subjective. And, in a, you know, in, in one sense, mm-hmm. it is true that it is subjective because we are subjects. I mean, we are subjects of the king. We are indeed going to perceive things subjectively because that is our ontological nature as subjects. So there's nothing wrong with saying that. But what I think skeptics tend to mean is that there is the, the, the idea that beauty is, this is the same kind of argument with morality, really, that, that beauty is subjective. Therefore it has no ontological reality there's no there's nothing objectively true about beauty which is what a lot of people i think mean when they say well beauty is subjective but i think the subjectivity there is like uh sort of like the multifaceted nature of the cosmos and paul's talking about uh in in the resurrection chapter in first corinthians 15 he's talking about star differs from star in glory and when Mm -hmm. you find you know what a child finds beautiful or what uh, your friend finds beautiful or your husband or your wife or your spouse, your uncle, your grandmother, there are so many different subjective facets to beauty that uh, it it speaks of the variegated nature of God's beauty, that uh, so many different subjects attesting to the reality of beauty in nature, in song. Uh, So there's a necessity of it being subjective, but that subjectivity is grounded ontologically in God who is beauty himself. Yes. And uh, so what you were saying about beauty reminding us of things, I was thinking of the passage in Isaiah that, you know, we, we were talking about Isaiah earlier. In the 40th chapter, in the 26th verse and 27th verse, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because mm-hmm. of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Yeah. Not one of them is missing. Now you could... You can certainly say that about the stars, but you can also say that verse is exactly explicable to the Red Sea crossing. He leads forth their host by number and calls them all by name. Moses, come up to me. Aaron, your brother. You know, there's not one one Israelite perished in the Red Sea crossing. And then the next verse in Isaiah 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. And so here Isaiah is reminding Israel, God knows where you are. Just look at the stars and remember what God has done for you. You know, the Old Testament is constantly, the New Testament too, remember, 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 remember. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you're saying, too, about this, um, the the anchored nature of beauty, 
even when it's subjective, even when it's something that we experience that's true in a technical, philosophical sense, um, of course, but when you're saying that it is uh, more rooted, more anchored, it's akin to what is true, not just what we sense is beautiful, it also makes me think of this opening in the Silmarillion where Iluvatar has given, God has given each of the Ainur um, a particular melody to sing. And they are not yet singing together, but Tolkien specifies each of these melodies are highlighting one aspect of Iluvatar's thoughts, of God's mm. thoughts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says. But do the heavens matter to us any more today? What does scripture mean when it says the heavens declare the glory of God? How can a biblical perspective of the universe fit within the paradigms of modern science? How can a deeper understanding of the universe strengthen and encourage your faith? Find out by putting good heavens in your podcast subscription list today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of Good Heavens. For more information on Good Heavens or any other resources on Christian apologetics, world religions, and cults, be sure to visit Watchman.org today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.